is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, authorities say the move to try to eradicate varroa might probably help stop or at least slow the spread into other states. And harvest is over for much of the Riverina, but after those summer storms, many grain growers, well, they're swapping the header for the boom spray. Yeah, look, we've been quite lucky, really. Um, We've probably had 50 to 60 fill in total, which is good. It starts building a profile of moisture for next year, get a good germination of any volunteer crops, you know, get, get a good good weed kill there as well. But yeah, no, look, it's, it's, it's going to be a bit of a relief to be caught up and go into Christmas knowing you haven't got to go and get a header going or something like that. You can always send us a text 0467 and we also uh, have a look at the weather outlook as well uh, with uh, some uh, some predicting more rain on the way next week and beyond as well. So we'll hear a little bit more about that shortly on the program too. But first up today, it's been three months since the New so- since New South Wales gave up on eradicating the deadly varroa mite and now 18 months since it was first discovered in, at the port of Newcastle, we've been in a transition to management phase since September as the industry looks to move to management sometime in the new year. More than 46,000 hives have been euthanized, though, and the mites have now spread further into the Sydney Basin. Shannon Mulholland is the New South Wales Deputy Incident Controller for Varroa Mite Response, and she told Amelia Bernasconi if the extensive eradication efforts weren't made, Varroa Mite would likely have infiltrated into other states by now. What we've spent the last couple of months working through with industry is essentially completing our commitments to the eradication phase of the response. Um, we recognise that there's certainly um, a number of impacts on the beekeeping industry from the eradication response itself and from the movement restrictions. So we've been working with beekeepers just to finalise those conditions, uh, finalise any outstanding euthanasia of hives that beekeepers were requesting from us and also the disposal attached to that work. And uh, we're busily working through having all of the owner reimbursement claims uh, finalised by the end of the year before we, we hit those end-of-year cut-off deadlines. The rest of the team has been working through is also um, a new iteration of the response plan. Um, we've been workshopping quite extensively with uh, interstate jurisdictions and with all of the stakeholder industries, both pollination-dependent and beekeeping industries across the country, to talk through what we need to do in terms of transition to management and what the next phase of work actually looks like to support industry in moving forward. On that um, point of people still voluntarily asking DPI to euthanise their hives, what's behind those decisions? I imagine that's really challenging. Yeah, well, after the decision to transition to management was made in September, that brought about um, an end to the mandatory euthanasia under the eradication phase of the response. But we acknowledged that there was impacts to beekeepers in certain zones where they had been made to stand still for a period of time um, that potentially resulted in damage to those hives or swarms of absconding for those hives. So we, we made the option to put um, the offer to industry if they still wished for us to euthanise those hives, um, dispose of the material and then they could seek the owner reimbursement claim process, that that opportunity was still open to them, but only if they wished to take it up. There were many beekeepers that didn't go down that path uh, and that was completely fine because we're in a, a new phase of the response now. Um, but that was part of our commitment to completing that phase of work and, and addressing the beekeeper needs uh, in those various areas where there were significant impacts. 
Do you have the final stats, Shannon, on how many hives had to be euthanized? And I suppose, um, yeah, just describe to me the, the role that that played in the eradication efforts. Sure. Uh, there's just over 46,000 hives across New South Wales that were euthanized under the eradication phase of the response. Um, and whilst it's certainly an impact on the beekeepers that were caught up in those eradication zones, uh, what it has achieved is a significant halt in the movement of mites over that period of time. Uh, whilst we do have mites still in New South Wales and we are starting to see a slow creep of mite uh, detections uh, as beekeepers are still undertaking their 16-week surveillance checks, um, that movement is happening in a very slow and measured way and that buys the industry time to upskill and get ready for managing Varroa on a broad scale. If we hadn't had those movement restrictions in place and we hadn't had that eradication phase of the response in place, we would be seeing widespread Varroa across New South Wales and potentially even interstate by this change, which would have uh, had really significant negative impacts on, on those industries that are affected. And that owner reimbursement you touched on, is the DPI committed to making all those payments before the end of this year, did you say? Uh, we are certainly aiming to do that. Uh, we want to have that phase of the program completed as, as rapidly as we can. Um, there will be a, a handful of cases that will trickle into next year that are, are still working through the process with the Rural Assistance Authority. Um, so the, the, we, we are aiming to have uh, the bulk of that work completed this year and it's important that beekeepers understand that if they are intending to make a claim for the owner reimbursement cost that it must be done this week. Um, we risk having claims not considered by RAA if they're not in by the end of this year. Just looking at the spread of varroa mites since you know that that was a huge discussion and there was lots of points for and against moving from eradication to management there was a lot of commentary around that and now that we are three months down the track what have you actually seen in terms of the spread has it seems by the look of the map that most varroa cases are still around those initial areas, but how would you describe the spread? Has it gone to any new areas or have any other areas sort of flared up with mite count since the management? Yeah, sure. The majority of new detections are still within our current management zones. So they're the orange zones that we see on the map that's on the website. And this is the area that previously has had a high level of infested premises and high mite counts. So it's certainly consistent that we're still detecting mites in those areas. Uh, probably the main development in the last couple of months is we are now seeing mite detections into the Sydney Basin. Now that was expected because it's bounding uh, an area of, of high mite load from the Central Coast up into the Hunter. So it, it wasn't surprising to the program team that we are seeing detections in the Sydney Basin. Um, but it is happening in a, in a slow and measured way uh, with the current um, settings that we have in place around the Transition to Management Program. And uh, a lot of the new detections are also coming through from beekeepers conducting those 16-week alcohol wash checks. So I really encourage beekeepers to continue to do their, their hive inspections, uh, continue to report Varroa through to New South Wales DPI. It is um, a notifiable organism, so you do have to report a positive detection. But that positive detection triggers activity from the response program where we can come and provide you with the right technical advice confirm that what you're seeing really is Varroa and not just a bit of debris in the bottom of an alcohol wash or potentially a pollen mite or something that looks a bit Varroa-like uh, and work, work through that process with you so that you have confidence in, in what you're seeing and then what to do next. Um, and uh, we still have on-offer uh, miticide strips for beekeepers that are testing positive for Varroa um, for a little while longer just while we're getting those commercial supply lines up and running. Um, but yeah, I'd certainly encourage you to reach out to the response team so we can help you through that process. 
What sort of modelling, what sort of tools does the DPI have um, at your disposal to sort of predict the pace of the spread? I mean, are other states still quite at risk? Uh, look, we, we do know that varroa will spread in time. Um, that's a given. And what we can use is a lot of the international data and modelling that has been underway for many, many years now as varroa has spread throughout different countries. Uh, and we we also have 18 months' worth of experience of varroa within an Australian context, which is also really important. And we have a really sound understanding of how the mite is moving through the landscape, um, both naturally and uh, via humans, if we are moving infested bees and hives around the place as well. So what we have now before us is the opportunity to make sure that industry understands those risk pathways, understand how the mite is breeding, um, operating, moving through the environment, and we can use that as part of that ongoing management strategy as beekeepers start to adopt rower into their um, integrated pest management strategies moving forward. What are you anticipating maybe even the first half of 2024 we'll see? I suppose that to, to June will take us up to the two-year mark. What can beekeepers sort of brace themselves for in the next six months in terms of spread or changes? Um, I'd certainly expect that we will continue to find new infested premises. Uh, if we have beekeepers that are, are being you know, careful and responsible about um, testing their hives and, and complying with the various regulations that are in place, um, we are anticipating that the spread should be slow, uh, which is ideal because that buys time for the industry to upskill and to, to get prepared for managing varroa in areas where it currently isn't present. Um, a key goal that we have for the Transition to Management program next year is to roll out a significant level of training and workshops and engagement with industry so that beekeepers can learn the necessary skills of how to recognise and then manage varroa um, in readiness for it appearing in their region. And what about the wild honeybees? What's still sort of being done in the unmanaged populations or has that all ceased with this management? Uh, we still have a component of the response team that is looking at wild honeybees. Uh, we We'll be running that program up until early next year and that's assessing uh, mite loads in different areas, particularly within the existing management zones uh, and then validating some of the different testing options that we have for, for checking wild honeybees. Uh, we know that we are seeing mites in the management zones in wild honeybees and so we would expect that to continue as they start to mingle in the environment as they're foraging for food or you know, doing normal bee things in the environment. Um, but it is something that we're going to have to monitor and that monitoring process will be far beyond that transition to management program scope for next year. It will need to be monitored on a, a much longer time frame. How long do you think it might take us to get back to the bee populations that we had? Is that achievable in the next few years given, what did you say, about, was it 46,000 hives were euthanised? Yeah, I, I think the bee industry is certainly looking ahead uh, at uh, their normal management systems, breeding programs and incorporating varroa into that system. So in terms of hive numbers, you know, the industry will recover, but we need to balance that against sound pest and disease management moving forward as well to make sure that there is a healthy and sustainable industry sector for a long time to come. New South Wales DPI's Deputy Incident Controller for Varroa Mite Response, Shannon Mulholland, speaking there with Amelia Bernasconi. Well, Australia's peak industry body for beekeepers said there's a lot of anxiety within the sector as beekeepers await first plans and training opportunities to help them deal with Varroa Mite. The New South Wales DPI says education will be rolled out in 2024 as the beekeeping industry transitions to managing Varroa 
after eradication efforts ceased in September. The Australian Honey Bee Industry Council CEO Danny Lefebvre told Amelia Bernasconi that many beekeepers want more answers before deciding to reinvest and rebuild their hives and businesses. There's some pretty, still some pretty mixed uh, views out there. There's a lot of disappointment that we transitioned, but on the other hand, there's also a lot of beekeepers who are quite relieved that uh, we've ended the eradication efforts and now learning to live with it. Uh, there's still a lot of anxiety from beekeepers, a lot of unknowns about how to manage it moving forward, and a lot of beekeepers embarking on a new learning curve about managing a new pest in their hives. It's probably hard to estimate, but how many roughly beekeepers do you think we've lost through this? I could not begin to imagine how traumatic this has been for a lot of beekeepers, particularly those who had their hives euthanized. I mean, there is so much to work out. Uh, yeah, is there a percentage you think we might have lost of, of beekeepers within your industry, your council? Yeah, well, I agree that the the impact this has had on those beekeepers in those zones and the beekeepers particularly who have had their hives euthanized is... is uh, unmeasurable. It would be devastating. I can't imagine what they're feeling, um, particularly having to make the sacrifice of the industry and then deciding that it's not achievable uh, would be quite devastating. And, and look, in terms of hives that we've lost, we know that, that there was sort of 60,000 hives euthanized in the process. Uh, and so a lot of those beekeepers have re-established, but there's still beekeepers that haven't re-established and assessing whether they will continue in the industry or, or, or leave the industry in terms of other beekeepers that are, are leaving because of Varroa, we are seeing uh, a, a reasonable percentage of recreational beekeepers um, no longer choose beekeeping as a hobby at this stage. Uh, but we haven't seen a large exodus of commercial beekeepers yet because we haven't seen the Varroa mite spread really beyond Newcastle and, and Kempsey uh, to any great degree uh, where we're really seeing the impacts on those bees. So do beekeepers feel prepared to go into 2024? I understand that, you know, lots of things that are, are still underway will be phased out. We will officially be just managing Varroa as another pest. Are, are beekeepers ready to do that? I understand there is some training coming forward from the DPI. Yeah, I don't think beekeepers do feel prepared. I think that's part of the problem. Um, the process in a biosecurity response and the deed that we've agreed to uh, stipulates a transition to management period, which we're trying to negotiate the, the plan that high, uh, outlines that transition to management. key component of that plan is centred around education and training. And it's that education and training that's really going to help beekeepers get a good understanding, get them prepared, get them comfortable um, and, and be able to devise a plan for their businesses moving forward. So until they have that training, um, yeah, there is a lot of anxiety out there and a lot of beekeepers that are not sure exactly how they're going to manage the pest. I know the DPI was really trying to get all the reimbursement claims processed before the end of this year. Is there still discussions around compensation as beekeepers incur what I imagine are probably significant costs or certainly costs they didn't have before we had varroa mite? Would there be or are there industry calls for compensation to help them establish this new way forward? Well, what we're calling as industry is support from the government and the RDCs in helping the industry understand the pests in Australia and how to manage it effectively um, and how to minimise the impacts, how to minimise beekeepers choosing to leave the industry uh, and to minimise the impacts that we might have on pollination-dependent industries. So there's a, a large amount of work that needs to happen 
uh, including the training and education, but also devising best management practice guides for Australian beekeepers to really educate and get people comfortable with managing the mite into the future. I understand New South Wales is the biggest honey producing state, is that right? Uh, so New South Wales has 45% of the country's beehives mm. um, and as a result are the largest honey producers, yes. Yeah, so is there confidence that the state can get back on its feet? Despite all this uncertainty, is there still confidence that you know the hives will be built up? I know there's lots of work being done in the queen bee space and, and breeding values and things. Is there that underlying confidence? Yeah, look, I mean, we've had a lot of hives destroyed in this process. Uh, it's represented a, you know, just under 10% of New South Wales hives destroyed. And, and uh, like I said, there are beekeepers that have rebounded very quickly who have got hives back and are back up to the same operating colony numbers as pre-Varroa. Um, but there's a number of beekeepers who are also just um, going to batten down the hatches and wait for this Varroa to establish and the wave, the initial wave to come through uh, and, and not invest more in their businesses until they're comfortable they can manage it and they really understand what the impacts will be. So that there's a lot of mixed views and a lot of different strategies that beekeepers are, are implementing. How long will it be till we get our numbers back to pre-Varroa? I don't know that we will for a long time because we also know from overseas experiences that a number of uh, beekeepers will choose to retire or will choose to leave the industry because of those additional costs that they'll have to incur to manage the pest. Australian Honey Bee Industry Council CEO Danny Lefebvre talking there to Amelia Bernasconi. It's 23 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, harvest is over across much of the Riverina, but after summer storms, many grain growers are swapping their header for the boom spray to get on top of uh, various issues that have been caused by the rain. The southern cropping region began the season with above average soil moisture, but there was a dry spring and heavy rain in some areas during harvest as well. Emily Doak spoke with some growers to see how their season actually finished up. Harvest at Scott Golding's farm near Lake Ajelico wrapped up in November, but he hasn't stopped since. In between filling up the spray tank, he told me it's been returned to somewhat of a normal season after floods last year. This year we put about roughly about 4,000 acres in all up, a bit of share farm country and that. Yeah, that, that's enough to keep us busy, that's for sure. So how did things uh, wrap up? How did your crops perform this year? Given the season, we're, we're, we're very grateful for what we got. Um, our wheat was probably about average. Um, the canola was a little bit below par, but that was to be expected given we had a we had a very dry start. We had all our crops in early and on time, but we lot didn't come up until sort of we got rain in early June. That sort of had a pretty big impact on the canola um, at the end. So and yeah, our field peas yeah quite good actually, just about average. So extremely grateful for what we got because it, yeah, it could have been a lot worse. And what have you seen over the past sort of month or so since harvest finished? There's been a bit of storm rain about. Were you under much rain? Yeah, look, we've been quite lucky, really. Um, we've probably had 50 to 60 fill in total, which is good. It starts building a profile of moisture for next year. Get a good germination of any volunteer crops, you know, get, get a good 
good weed kill there as well. But yeah, no, look, it's, it's, it's going to be a bit of a relief to be caught up and go into Christmas knowing you haven't got to go and get ahead of going or something like that. Just north of Murrah, Dan Fox says after sowing into wet country, the hot and dry September took the shine off his yield potential. Oh, in our district, barley's been, been very good, something that seems to shine no matter what, whether it's wet, dry or otherwise. Wheat's been pretty good. Uh, considering the the tough September that we had. There's been some variable reports, but it's certainly looking above average uh, for the district. And then canola's been a very variable one, depending on uh, what sort of rainfall you you had leading up or or through the middle of the year. And and certainly sowing time and variety has has played a very big impact on on how canola's has yielded, Uh, and pulses for that matter too, has been been quite variable in the district. But yeah, we're, we're still... Still plugging away, trying to get finished, and we've got a few chickpeas uh, that will be... Well, they're still growing at the moment. I'm just looking at them here right now. And even through that hot, windy weather that we had there a couple of weeks ago, they were still you know, still trying to flower in that. So they're a very resilient plant. Yeah, so we'll, we'll be harvesting them sort of uh, first half of January, hopefully. And I suppose with a bit of storm rainfall about that we've seen over recent weeks, you'd be uh, spending a bit of time on the sprayer where you can manage it as well. Yeah, out of the fry pan into the fire. We'll get off the header for two days and, yeah, you're straight on the boom spray. Yeah, really conserve that, that summer moisture that we do get, which we are getting more and more of it uh, for some reason. And uh, if we can can store that and start the year with a full full uh, profile of moisture, well, it, you know, this, this 2023 season has proved how far we can actually get into hot, dry September and sort of end of August period and, and still come out with a very profitable result at the other end. The Simpson family farms between Gerildry, Oaklands and Urana, growing wheat, barley, canola and vetch this year. Lawrence Simpson says the crops were set up for a good start, sowing into a full moisture profile after flooding in 2022. He says despite a dry spring, some timely rainfall in October ensured a good harvest. Some dry land barley averaging up to sort of five tonne um, and wheat was, yeah, even a little bit ahead of that again, which was just unheard of for us. So, yeah, we were very lucky. You've said that you were pretty pleased with your harvest. What are you hearing generally about your district, about how, uh, how crops eventually came off? Oh, very similar. Like, I think everyone you talk to is, yeah, been pretty fortunate. There were certainly some some areas further east of us that got too wet early on, um, and I think that's impacted yields a bit. But, yeah, overall, I think everyone's been very happy, and it's just been great conditions for harvesting too. Like, the crops have been standing, they've been freshing well, and the headers were doing what they're meant to do this year, so it was wonderful. Bit of a relief after the, the flooding and wet weather last season? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and just any areas that were completely wiped out uh, last year were doing incredibly well this year. So that sort of paid paid for a little bit of last year's losses. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's been good. Lawrence Simpson from near Geraldery in southern New South Wales, talking there to Emily Doak. It's twenty eight minutes past twelve. ABC Listen podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio, New South Wales.
Well, demand for turkeys is outstripping supply in Australia this festive season. There are fewer turkey producers in the southeast of uh, the uh, nation than in previous years. But producers say consumers are still keen to get their hands on the birds. Lucy Dodd uh, took over the Pujanagoric uh, Free Range Turkey farm at Bordertown in South Australia about one year ago. And she says that her free range turkeys are in pretty hot demand. Uh, demand's been really strong this year. It's my first year as a turkey farmer, so uh, it's hard for me to compare to other years. And uh, definitely I haven't had as much supply uh, as uh, the previous owners had, um, but there was no way that I could meet uh, the full demand this year. Um, and general feedback I've been getting from butchers and other people is that it's, it's hard to find free-range turkey, especially... I don't know if it's high compared to other years. Perhaps the supply is less than what it's been in previous years. So how many turkeys have you been able to supply this year? Um, since buying buying the property here at, at Bordertown, I've done 3,000 turkeys this year, um, which is only about a third of what uh, the previous owners used to do. And where are you supplying into, Lucy? Um, supplying right across Australia in some ways, into Adelaide, up to Darwin and across into Melbourne. There are less turkey farmers around, uh, and which just makes supply harder to come by. Do you know what's um, sort of driving the reduction in turkey farms across Australia? No. Um, it's, it's a niche market. I guess you've got to be able to find uh, your day-old birds and, and grow them out. And it's popular at Christmas time, but there is less demand throughout the year, so you've got to be able to manage that cash flow. But it's just not, a, you know, it's not something that's done broadly. Did you come from a farming background before you took over the turkey farm? Yeah, we've got a um, family farm here at Bordertown and I was already a pasture-raised chicken farmer so it made sense to, to broaden the, the poultry opportunities and as well as um, my farm has its own processing plant so that was a big advantage as well. Are there any differences in, in working with chickens versus turkeys? Uh, there's a few, yeah. I sort of uh, didn't know that might be the case when I started. Uh, turkeys are obviously bigger, um, but they, they behave a bit differently to, to chickens. They're, they're very curious and um, a bit more of a flock animal than chickens are. Talking turkey there uh, in uh, Bordertown, Lucy Dodd is a chicken and turkey producer at Bordertown in South Australia. Couldn't resist that one. And uh, she says the demand for free-range turkeys is uh, very high this year and uh, demand outstripping supply, as she says, uh, Lucy Dodd. It's uh, coming up to 29 minutes to one. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for the world today. Cape York now bracing for flooding as residents across far north Queensland spend the days before Christmas mopping up. A new CSIRO report shows renewable energy is likely to be cheaper than nuclear power for years to come. And the end of an era. Tributes flow for the flamboyant Italian-Australian furniture salesman and Melbourne icon Franco Cozzo. All that and a whole lot more coming up on The World Today shortly, uh, but here on The Country Hour, it's time to uh, get some news headlines now. Did we steal a bit of thunder uh, there? Just, by the, playing just, just the first two, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I won't I do that. Frank I won't do that again. I didn't know if he was no, that well known in no, New South probably, Wales. No, yeah. well, I saw that yeah. and, and I, I have heard of him because I spent some time in Melbourne, but yeah. m- most people wouldn't. No, in, no, in New South no. Wales, no. We would have had our own Frank Cozzo, though, I'm sure. Mm. 
yeah, uh, as far as... Yes, that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> People screaming at you through the television. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. That's right. That's how they make their name, these yeah, people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Over the years, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Yep. Uh, actually, Jerry Harvey's still doing it. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And and uh, also making other commentary as well. Oh, there's a whole range of issues that... <laughs> Jerry will Jerry talk, likes about. To talk about. Yep. Uh, well, as you've just heard, six Australian Defence Force personnel being deployed to the, uh, uh, well, not to the Red Sea itself, but that area. That region. To that region. That uh, very yeah. large region. Well, a very large region. Um, uh, they're going to uh, help out the uh, US led efforts to protect uh, cargo ships that are under attack from uh, Houthi rebels. Uh, Australia at this stage still not sending um, any any ships as requested by the United States. Uh, also, as you just heard, the CSIRO says that nuclear energy is currently the most expensive way to Australia to transition to a cleaner energy grid. Uh, the research finds that renewable technologies such as solar and wind remain the cheapest source of new energy. But that's not that's not new. I mean, we've heard that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very it's expensive. Just, and yeah. the idea that they they talk about uh, these small using these small Reactors mm. um, that have that no one's actually ever built. Yeah. <laughs> so. And who would be willing to host? Yeah, and such what a happens thing? to the waste? Yeah, that's the other issue. Uh oh. The next, that, no, that was three stories they stole. <laughs> um, <laughs> flooding in North Queensland is continuing. Yes. With heavy rain from ex-cyclone Jasper, uh, another community under threat. This time up in Cape York, uh, Cowan Yama. Uh, they've had. Uh, uh, evacuations yesterday and some more today and more rain on the way for them and uh, police are appealing for help to find 11 year old boy missing um, from near Lithgow in the central west uh, Joshua Tuiletafunga uh, was last seen at a home in Bowenfells yesterday morning uh, the boy is known to use the railway line and frequents the Mount Druitt and Blacktown areas so if anyone is aware of his uh, whereabouts mm. uh, please contact uh, local police mm. Absolutely. So, yes, a, that's right. If you missed any of those stories, I'll be on the wall today. <laughs> <laughs> In about half an hour's time. All right. Okay. All right. Thanks for that, Adam. Yeah, All right. right. That, that's, a, that's a reminder to me not to play uh, the uh, that you promo do it after. before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do it after. That's right. right. Okay. Next time I will. Okay. All right. Make okay. it still my stories. <laughs> okay. The other way around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. It's coming up to uh, 25 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, let's find out what's happening with the weather details. Uh, and uh, joining us from the Bureau, Jake Phillips, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. Now, rain. So there's been quite a lot of rain and quite some quite good totals in uh, a range of areas around the state. Yeah, there has been, particularly in central and eastern areas. So top of our, our list over the last 24 hours was around the mid-north coast with Comboyne picking up 111 millimetres. Uh, further down the coast, uh, Swansea picked up 59, and even down as far as Vincentia, uh, there were 64 millimetres there. But once you get south of about Aladulla, the falls dropped off significantly. And even a couple of inland places have done all right. So Dubbo picked up 41 millimetres. But uh, in the west, Gilgandra picked up 64 millimetres. So that's one of the, the better in the higher inland totals there. Mm. But once you get sort of west of about Cobar, the, the falls dropped right off. And a lot of places out past that got nothing at all. But uh, in, in and around, we're not that far away from Broken Hill yesterday. We were hearing reports of 51 millimetres. So there is, there is some storm activity here and there, a bit hit and miss. So might miss that's some of the... Right, yeah. yes. Miss some of the gauges. Some storms out in the far west. And, yes, yeah, some of it does miss the gauges as well, that's true, because the network is a little bit sparse in parts of the west. 
Um, but uh, looking today, uh, the, the focus of activity will be, really be over the northeast. So the weather chart at the moment, uh, as it often is this time of year, is dominated by low pressure troughs. So there's one over the northeast, which is the, the main feature that's generating storms already over the northern tableland. So as we speak, there's some storms in the area in the vicinity of uh, Gleninus, uh, Armadale, and out towards Nimboida and Jack Adgery as well. So no warnings at the current time, but there is a, some concern that some of these storms could uh, intensify a little bit through the afternoon over that northern ranges and northern slopes area. So if you're up that way, just be careful because there could be some thunderstorm warnings issued through the course of the afternoon. Yeah, and uh, there was some talk, there, uh, there had been some talk that uh, the, the rain might intensify. I don't know, is there any sign of that over the next few days at all? Or, and uh, precipitate some flooding, particularly in the, in the, on the north coast and in the northeast? Uh, there is some risk of um, some heavy rain over the next few days, but probably not on a widespread basis. It's going to be mostly from thunderstorm activity. So uh, whether or not that's going to cause a catchment-wide response is, is uncertain at this stage. But there definitely will be a flash flood risk. So that's the case today up in that northern, northeast portion of the state. Uh, and again tomorrow over the northeast. Uh, a little bit of an easing on Saturday perhaps. But then Sunday through to Tuesday it looks like being a, a very active storm period. And of course that covers Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and Boxing Day. So through that period from Sunday to Tuesday, particularly the eastern half of the state, it looks like a lot of areas could be susceptible to some storms and potentially some pretty nasty ones as well. So that's where, once again, there'll be a local flash flood risk from storms and uh, potentially even some large hail in amongst those storms as well. It's a little bit too early to pinpoint uh, exactly where at this stage because it's hinging on the development of another trough which hasn't even formed at this stage. So as that trough develops through the weekend and, and we get a bit of an idea of how it's going to progress during the next the couple of days after that, we should be able to uh, tie down the storm areas with a little bit more precision. Okay, is it looking like an east coast low? I mean, there some people are talking about that. Uh, no, not at this stage. What does look like happening, though, is that a low-pressure system will form, and it's associated with that trough, a low-pressure system will form uh, probably over Victoria during later Sunday or even Monday and then move probably over Bass Strait, but there's still some uncertainty as to the position of that. So it's not your classic East Coast low, but it could be quite a significant system. I know that our neighbours down in Victoria are looking at the potential of some significant rainfall on, uh, on that side of the fence as well. So it's a broad system that's affecting multiple states and um, yeah, an uncertainty in how it's going to move yet, but it does have potential to be pretty significant. So unfortunately, that does coincide with that Christmas period. So we do ask people to just... Uh, you know, pay attention to the Bureau forecasts and any warnings that do get issued over the next day or two. So it could be a wet Christmas for some out there, by the sound of things. It, it could be, but... Uh, not so much for the inland, though. Not so much for the west, and even in the east where these storms will be, as we always say with the thunderstorms, it's really hit and miss. So it's one of those situations where you might get a significant storm at your place, or, and down the road they'll see nothing at all. So it's not going to be... It's unlikely to be consistent across the region. Yeah, and uh, talking about uh, the, the situation, then you know the Boxing Day test might be get, might be getting a bit of rain. You were talking about Victoria there. Yeah, it does look that way. I hope not because I had plans to watch a bit of <laughs> <laughs> on the TV. I might add, I'm not lucky enough to be going down there. But um, yeah, at, at this stage, it's looking like that that low that we talked about could still be in the vicinity on Boxing Day. Um, and again, that'll that'll play into the Sydney to Hobart race, which of course yeah. starts on Boxing Day as well. So. 
A lot of uncertainty. I mean, it's typical that sort of four or five days out, uh, we do get this uncertainty. But this year, there seems to be perhaps even more than normal. So watch this space. Watch this space, yes, indeed. All right. Uh, thanks for that, Jake. Thanks, Michael. It's 20 minutes to one on the Country Hour. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Looking at uh, the longer-term forecast, a weak El Nino is allowing all these breakthrough weather events that are bringing rain when the long-term forecast had been for hotter and drier conditions, uh, at least for the uh, next three months or so. Dennis Luke's an independent weather forecaster. He's been looking at the forecast for the next week or so and beyond, but he says the next week more rain is on the way, as we just heard there from the Bureau, and there is a possibility, according to Dennis, of an East Coast low forming next week. He says three international National computer models now are also forecasting an about face and a return to La Nina later in 2024. One of the things you've got to understand is that if it's a weak signal, then maybe other things uh, become apparent, like the thunderstorms and lightning and flash flooding, which didn't surprise me in the least. So we're moving into summer. And one of the things that I've noticed around the state of New South Wales is that even though there might be a couple of days here and there that everyone has probably got around about the same temperature, moving forward, it's going to be a bit like throwing darts at a dartboard. These East Coast lows uh, are quite significant because there are certain pockets in El Nino that allow these systems to sort of uh, fluctuate here and there which is what's happening um, so far this week and to the rest of the week. And even Christmas down here in Melbourne, we're going to have uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and Boxing Day test. Um, looks like the rain is going to affect that, plus the Sydney to Hobart, when you have something like a low or moderate El Nino. And then we're going to transition uh, into a very short low to a neutral, and then from my computer modelling, the three that I use for long-range stuff that haven't left me down for, you know, over 25 years, we're looking like we're going back into another La Nina. So, Is that right? So La Nina on the cards? Yeah, another five computer models, uh, sorry, the latter five months, the last five months have actually said that uh, it's showing an increase, and by the time we get to winter next year... Um, it looks like most of east coast of Australia will be uh, inundated with floods again, which is uh, unfortunate. But these sort of things are going to become uh, apparent over the next probably 50 to 100 years. So we're just going to have to start looking at dealing with this. And I think we need to have a lot more of early warning systems compared to what we've been having uh, over the decades. And I know that they had a, um, a parliamentary inquiry into the floods in 2022, but um, we've heard nothing about what was supposed to be recommended or anything. But then that comes out, I think, um, February next year. So it'll be interesting to see what they say. So unfortunately, um, most of East Coast Australia and just as much New South Wales, it's another one on the cards. But one of the things you might have noticed on the images that I gave you, that even though the cooler waters are along stretching far along um, the equator and past the dateline, there's still a lot of warm waters around uh, the Coral Sea and the Tasman Sea. So that 
in itself is indicative of bringing more thunderstorms and lightnings during winter. I guess the other thing too is that some of the other bureau sort of modelling is not not really saying La Nina yet. They're still sort of saying a mild El Nino. So, um, but you're you're looking at some modelling that sort of goes against that grain or what the bureau is saying. Well, I don't think I've ever had the same saying as what the El Nino, uh, what the bureau have said uh, ever since I started doing this. And uh, as you know, that uh, even though the United States and a number of European and Asian um, meteorological organisations started saying that they had El Nino like three or four months before the bureaus. If this continues the way it's looking, every every um, month that it comes out, which has been five months, if it continues like this, uh, we could have a, a long La Nina. Yeah, I guess, it, and that and that means wetter than usual conditions, and normally that, that's the situation. And and you know, for grain growers particularly, they wouldn't wouldn't be minding that because there was there was a lot of fear about an El Nino and hot and dry. Yeah, although I was talking about it on the ABC down here, that um, a lot of farmers were very upset with uh, the bureau's forecast of an El Nino, saying that it was going to be stronger than what it is, and they've sold all their um, all their animals. Dennis Luke, who's an independent weather forecaster there, talking about uh, the possibility of uh, the weak El Nino giving way to La Nina. We'll have to wait and see whether that comes to fruition. It's 14 to 1. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Earlier this month, widespread changes to the way water in the Murray-Darling Basin is shared were actually legislated in the federal parliament. The new laws give states more time and options for water-saving infrastructure projects and commit that 450 gigalitres of water must be recovered from the environment by December 2027. Kath Sullivan asked the Murray-Darling Basin Authority's Andrew McConville what the changes mean for his organisation, tasked with seeing the plan's implementation. For us, Kath, it's about probably walking and chewing gum at the same time in many ways. You know, we have our ongoing task of, of running the River Murray and, and seeing through the implementation of the Basin Plan uh, what the changes do that have come through the bill Obviously, it pushes back the date of, of Sidlam reconciliation to the end of 26. So you know, we'll need to, to take that into account. We'll work with the states with the projects they have and if they bring forward new projects. And then also for the Commonwealth in terms of its task of recovery of the, the 450 gigalitres of environmental efficiency water, um, looking at, at tracking the progress of that. So it pushes our, our reconciliation and monitoring task out. That does butt up against the basin plan review, but I think you know we're we're confident we can both continue our work and and, and work with the states to to help them understand you know, what they might look like at that end of twenty six date. So that's probably the first point, Kath. And then the second is we have a specific task, which is the development of a constraints roadmap over the course of twenty twenty four. The fact that you're calling it the River Murray and not the Murray River does that indicate you've been spending all of your time in South Australia? <laughs> No, it, it, it doesn't at all, Kath. It's a great question, but uh, you know that's that's how we we do use the terminology when we look in the context of the agreement. But you know, what we're seeing this year, thankfully, I think across the entire River Murray or Murray River system, is perhaps a, 
a more normal year. You know, this time last year, we were absolutely right in the middle of some of the most significant floods that we'd seen in, in, in several decades. Uh, you know, what we have now is a system that's still quite full. Storages are pretty full above sort of 88, 89% across the basin, but a much more normal outlook in terms of how we would expect to be operating the river uh, at this time of the year. Okay, to go to the constraints. Now, I think there were maybe something like 4,000 landholder agreements required as part of this project. How many of those have actually been reached and how many have you got to go? Yeah, look, I, I can't answer that question, Kath. I, I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a task for, for the states. What what we've been asked to do is look at the overall roadmap to, to relaxation of constraints. And that, yes, it includes, uh, you know, how... Uh, landholder agreements might be might be negotiated for for access to allow um, you know water to move out onto the floodplain. It, it also means looking at where there might be infrastructure constraints, um, where there but might be rule changes but that are surely needed. Surely the Murray Darling Basin Authority can't do anything with constraints until these uh, agreements have been reached. Hasn't that been the whole um, handbrake all this time? I wouldn't describe it as a handbrake, Kath. I think certainly it is very challenging, but I think that what we need to do is is work collectively with the states. I think perhaps what we've seen is is a a little bit of a disjointed approach. And and you know when we think about constraints, yes, people do focus on uh, the landholder uh, agreements, but there are also many other things that can be done in order to ease constraints, which then bring greater benefit to the water that's recovered for the environment. So. Yes, uh, access is one part of it, but I think you know what we need to do as the MDVA is work with the states to say, okay, how can we um, how can we be perhaps more consistent in the way we're approaching across borders? How can we identify all of the opportunities? So it's not just about access agreements um, to to work out you know where there's opportunities to to relax constraints. What's going on with the Barmer choke and attempts to reduce the sand slug? Yeah, so look, you know what what we saw Kath with the with the choke this year is is with the the high level of of, of flow and flooding that uh you know there was more more sand uh deposited uh, in the reach uh this year probably the equivalent of what would normally happen over the period of, of 4 or 5 years. Um the MDBA has has secured some additional funding from the Ministerial Council to really start to zero in on. There's about five or six options uh, that that need to be considered as to how we how we deal with the the constraints of the choke. And I think the point here is that there's no one silver bullet. It will be a combination of things. So it could be about the removing of, of some sand. It could be about using. Uh, pathways around. It could be about using infrastructure um, and importantly, making sure that we constructively engage with First Nations communities on both sides. So it's, I wish it was simple, Kath. Unfortunately, it's not. But, you know, we do have uh, a pathway and a series of options that we think can can help. So fair to say you're still thinking about it? Uh, I'd say we've gone well beyond thinking about it. I think we've got a fairly clear uh, understanding of, of the five or six most likely options that are going to help address the the capacity constraint that is there. Uh, and now it's about how do we turn those options into implementation. Andrew McConville is the Chief Executive Officer of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to uh, eight minutes to one. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales.
Despite a two-year extension of the white spot biosecurity control order on the Clarence River, schoolies will be available for Christmas, but they'll be in limited supply with less fishermen trawling the lakes and estuaries for the prawns and they're being snapped up as well by the locals. The state government has also thrown its support behind the uh, Clarence industry with a new campaign, Clarence Seafood is Good to Go. Kim Honan is speaking here to Clarence River Fisherman Cooperative's Damien Moran about the seafood that's available for Christmas. It's plentiful at the moment, I could say, for fresh product. Boats have been working all week, um, and lots of king, fresh-cooked king prawns. There's green kings, bugs. Uh, limited crabs, but we do usually see that at this this time of year. So, yeah, gearing up for the weekend ahead. So a lot of ocean prawns on the menu, but what about uh, those in the estuary? Has it been a little bit uh, difficult uh, for prawn fishers given the control order currently in place regarding white spot? Yes, it is a little bit difficult. Uh, we've got a couple of guys uh, that are venturing out, out to the lake um, but have been catching uh, limited supply of cooked schoolies but uh, still very, very obviously one of the nicest eating prawns around. So, um, yeah, there have been a little bit uh, quiet on that side of things, but um, still hope, hoping we can get some in before Christmas starts. Okay, so those fishermen have held on to their licence and their quota for the schoolies. They haven't handed Correct. them back in for the control order period. Yes, that's true. Yep. And so how many sort of schoolies are, are they catching? It doesn't sound like there's going to be enough to go around if you're saying limited stock. Yeah, there was, there was times there last week um, that we had 80-odd kilo a day, uh, which is obviously down on massive numbers on what we usually are. But still, uh, locals are snapping them up, um, loving every single bit of them. We're very, very popular here in McLean in particular. So I'm hoping to have a little bit more for Chrissy. But if not, the uh, king's ready and ready to go. Okay. And so you have to actually cook them on the boat now? Schoolies? Yeah, all, all cooked on the boat. We don't do any cooking at the facility here. Um, all fishermen cook on the boat, so, yeah. So do you reckon these schoolies will make it down to the Sydney fish market or all the locals snapping them up? No, locals will snap them up. Uh, we'll keep the cook here, the, the Clarence River schoolie or the Clarence schoolies. Um, they will be here for our local customers and, yeah, they will snap them up really quick. And the, the state government have launched a social media campaign to try and get uh, people to... Back uh, Clarence Seafood, it's called Clarence Seafood is Good to Go, trying to support fishers and the seafood industry. Um, what do you reckon about this? Have you heard much about it yet? Uh, no, not mass amounts about it, but um, very, very grateful for the support. Um, obviously, fishers and ourselves going through a tough time um, with the white spot around. So um, it's very grateful for the support that they've given us and, and pushing that side of things and and yes, you're right, the Clarence Valley Seafood is good to go. So, yeah, we're ready and raring to go. But it doesn't sound like Sydney's going to see much of it this Christmas. I'll see little bits and pieces, um, as they always do. Uh, but, you know, it's caught local. We need to keep it here local uh, for all our uh, local customers and, and our visitors that come to see us, too. So, uh, so that we're ready and loaded for the weekend ahead, so to speak. This media campaign by the government, do you think this is what fishermen really need? Is it enough or w- would you be hoping something else from the government in terms of support um, during this you know, two-year control order? It, it's really hard. Um, you know, they've come out with a financial package for, for the fishermen as well, but it, it's just a small step in the right direction, I believe, uh, with the, you know, supporting Clarence Seafood. 
moving forward. Damien Moran, who's the business development manager with Clarence River Fishermen's Cooperative. We're staying with the seafood issue because there's a joint operation by the DPI State Police and the New South Wales Food Authority that's going to target the illegal sale and harvest of seafood products like fish and oysters ahead of the peak holiday demand. Maximum fines of up to $275,000 can be levelled at those participating in the black market oyster trade as it Department conducts covert patrols across oyster farms across the East Coast. Reporter Charles Rushforth spoke with Fisheries Compliance Officer Joe Wright about uh, what's happening with the operation and how the black market affects the fishing industry. Okay, so in the in the space in the oyster space, fisheries officers work very closely with uh, oyster industry participants. So they are primary producers who are out there. Um, working day in and day out to grow their oyster stock through to um, through to market. Uh, so we work closely with them to monitor activity that happens on their oyster leases. Um, they they are uh, on the lookout for theft of um, various types of aquaculture equipment uh, that that is used to hold oysters and the like. So we we work closely with them to get them to report suspicious um, activity, including people who are lurking around oyster leases and the like who are not usually there. And what about when after, say, fish products or or seafood might have been stolen and it's now being sold illegally? What does stopping that sort of behaviour look like at that level? How can customers and DPI officers spot when illegal seafood is being sold? Okay, so there are uh, very strict rules in New South Wales and in other adjacent jurisdictions, Queensland and Victoria, which which require um, sales of seafood to be appropriately documented. Um, and in the case of our legitimate, our lawful, our permitted operators, so our, both our seafood vendors and our commercial fishing industry participants, all, all, all that, well, there is documentation that accompanies uh, sales of seafood. There are also packaging requirements on certain types of seafood. And fisheries officers during the festive season and New Year will be focusing on sales that are occurring that uh, to, to detect uh, any sales where there have been breaches in those in those requirements around record keeping and reporting because that normally or can lead to detecting that the seafood has been um, taken illegally uh, by non-licensed people um, and that's and that's essentially what we're trying to stamp out because that activity directly impacts on the on our the men and women who work hard in our New South Wales commercial fishing industry and who you know have to follow really strict rules around the methods of capture of fish and the reporting of, of, of the types and the quantities of fish that they are taking. The demand for seafood at this time of year can be really intense. The, the lines for local seafood stores can be you know quite ridiculous sometimes, sometimes you know kilometres down the street. So if people come across a deal they think you know could almost be too good to be true, um, what would you say is the wider effect of some of those dodgy seafood deals they might be encountering? Well, look, um, ultimately, where these, these rules that relate to both the oyster industry and to the commercial fishing industry... Many of them are in place to protect the quality of seafood. Joe Wright from the DPI there. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's heading up to news time.